Acts chapter 9. This is something that I always struggled with because the theme of today is being teachable. Right? So, always been a stubborn kid and being teachable, you know, there's so many stuff about it, especially nowadays when there's so much information, so much data. Everyone is telling you what to do. Everyone is telling you, this is how you can make money. This is how to live a better life. This is how to be more, less stressful. This is how you do a, a four-hour workday, you know, things like that. And so there are many books that try to teach us something. The thing is, are we learning anything? Right? So there's a wise old adage that says, uh, you can only be taught as much as you want to learn. Right? So anyways, it's kind of pseudo-deep, right? It's, not, it's quite shallow. It's very easy to say. And so that's where I get, I get a little frustrated, right? Because if you look at um, uh, the next slide. So there's tons of book, you know, trying to teach you something, right? And, you know, and it's very nice, very vague, very mysterious, very esoteric book titles. Like Ageless Minds, Ageless Body, Timeless Minds. You know, what does that mean? The healing self. Or I like this one, just sit. For people who know they should but don't. What does that even mean? You know what I mean? I, I'm getting a little frustrated with all this psycho-deep, very shallow thoughts. And I thought, you know what? Anybody can do this. You know, believe it or not, there's a book from the guy on the left. Deepak Chopra, you should know him, right? He's a pretty famous life coach. He actually has a book called Quantum Healing. I'm confused. What does that mean? Is it, am I healed and not healed at the same time? How does that work? There has to be one or the other, right? So, you know, I thought, okay, you know what? I can make this stuff up too. Let's go for it. So I decided to call it Ruben's Timeless Adages for the Ages, <laughs> right? I came up with all, all of this in five minutes, all right? Here we go. Actually, I should have a drum there. Every time I finish saying the quote, there should be... <laughs> right, in every construction... There has to be a destruction. Right? I can say that. It's so deep, but it's not. Right? Another one is sometimes to move forward is to take a step back. Wow! I like this one. This one's good. This is all in five minutes. Sometimes silence is the loudest answer. Right? That happens to my mom a lot. When she's silent, I know, oh man, she's angry. <laughs> Next one. Sometimes silence is not the answer. <laughs> right? All right, two more, two more, a few more, okay. A man searches the world to find what he lost at home. <laughs> right? But on the other side, sometimes a man searches the world and comes home to find it. Which one is it? Right? And it's, it's like, and it's not in there, but you know, very common saying, right? Uh, all that glitters is not gold. Sometimes all that is gold does not glitter. You can keep saying this stuff. It's just pointless, meaningless adages. If people, it makes it so mysterious and deep, you know? And seriously, like, this session would have cost you $10,000 with Deepak Chopra, you know? <laughs> And of course, he'll go through some breathing techniques and stuff to make you relax and de-stress. You can learn that in five minutes from YouTube, right? So, <laughs> so, so what does it mean to be actually teachable? What does it mean to, to learn, right? And so we are bombarded with this, especially now, when we've become more affluent society as general. 
And then all these gurus come up and all these life coaches and then people on LinkedIn and Facebook telling you stuff. And it's like all these very nice sounding proverbs, right? Meaningless. Mean, truly meaningless because true change happens with, really with Christ. Everything else is just shallow changes. You know, there's a, there's a saying, a socialist uh, uh, psychologist, and this is from my workplace, Mercury Urvalds, a Swedish uh, HR development company, and basically they have designed their own personality test. And the guy who created it is this old man, about 70 years old, is well known in the world for his psychological test. He himself says people don't change, their behavioral traits change. But people who they are don't change. The one who knows that is the grandmother. You know, you see that little five-year-old grandkid? Yeah, that's the greedy one. Always takes the extra cookies. You know, he's always greedy. He's always eating more food than the rest of the grandkids, right? And so then, then you know, when he grows up, he, he comes back. He's all, like, hunky. He's all bodybuilt and stuff like that. And people say, look, he's changed. He's not eating as much. He's not greedy anymore. But the grandmother will know. No, 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 he's still greedy. Just greedy in a different way. Now he wants adoration. Now he wants people to. Now he wants to feel powerful in the presence of people, right? People don't change, but the behavioral traits change. And so, this is uh, today's topic: is being teachable. So let's jump straight into the word. The verse today is Acts chapter nine, verse uh, one to two, and then we'll move on from there. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, you know, in Paul, one of his letters, he wrote, Do you know who I am? I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the last from the tribe of the Benjamins. I'm a Pharisee. He's a, he's a, he's a lover of the law, he's a lover of the Old Testament. And to him, the people of the way, that's why it was called. Christianity hadn't had a term then yet, but to him that was the way. It was very troubling because, firstly, two things. People were not just having different philosophies. They were changed deeply and they were living very different from the Jewish way of life, right? And so this is affecting society. And secondly, the way is growing. It's spreading all across Greece and East Asia Minor and all these places. And so Paul, as a lover of the law, is, is, is becoming worried. And to his mind, this is a plague that has to be eradicated. This is the plague that has to be stopped. And he probably is, you know, if you read in the old Genesis book and stuff where uh, a Pharisee, you know, um, basically a priest, a son of the priest kills a Jew, uh, kills a guy and the woman that he's with because he felt that God was punishing the Israel because of these two people's act. And then the plague stopped within the tribe area. And so it's the same mentality, the, the ferocity of that is, I need to kill these people to stop this plague from happening. And so it was, it's a very self-righteous zeal. Right? In his mind, he's not wrong. He's completely right. Because this is what God wants him to do. <clears throat> and so, so something else interesting happened after that, right? So he got, the, he got the documents. He's on his way to Damascus. We know this awesome story, but I'm just going to quickly read it out to you. Verse 4, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's funny he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He's not persecuting Jesus, he's persecuting the people. But if you persecute the body, we are Christ. Right? 
Good. And as he is, so are we in this world. He replied, now you get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. All of a sudden, his whole life trajectory has changed. He came to do one thing, and now God's saying, no, I'm going to tell you what to do now. Right? So verse 7, the man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So only Paul saw Jesus, but everyone heard it. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. It was so funny. He was going to Damascus to chain people up, bound their feet and, and legs, and bring them to Jerusalem for trial so they can be executed or stoned to death or whatever punishment the council would do. And here he is. All of a sudden, he's not led by the hand. He can't see anymore. It's almost like a, a, a weird twist of, of, the, of joke, or like a twist of fate that it almost seems cruel, right? <clears throat> and then in the next verse, what happens is, as he goes to Damascus, there's a, a person of the faith called Ananias who's there. He's praying, and God appears to Ananias in a vision and told him, there's a man called Saul. Go and heal him and bring him to church. And Ananias, of course, argued with God, said, but he came here to kill us. But God said, nope. Do what, I, do what I told you. And so, we skip that part. We go straight into verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. It's funny. The same hands that Saul wanted to be bound is now touching him and healing him. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So here was this guy coming in, coming to Damascus with one purpose. Take prisoners, go back. And now he's led by hand into Damascus. The same hands he wants to be bound and stopped is the same hands that was laid upon him and healed. And he could see. And then he got baptized. Just like that. Right? So it, it seems so immediate, so quick. Right? But if you go on the next slide. But there's something there I want to show you guys. What happened? First the vision, yes, there was an encounter. But for three days, he had no food, no drink. He, he, there was nothing. He was in a wilderness, so as to speak. No food, no water. He was communicating with God. He was being ministered to by God in those three days. That's the only reason why he could get baptized immediately after that. A Pharisee now being baptized? That's crazy. So my point is that three days. I think there's something really deep there. And that title is, Find Your Desert. The three days of wilderness is something very powerful. It's funny, I always want to... My mind knows it's desert, but I keep wanting to say dessert. <laughs> All right. So, the desert. Uh, what happens in the desert, right? And so, there's something very... Uh, it's, not, it's not just a place where you go and, and ask God for stuff. That, that's, that's a place of petition. But the desert is something else. It's far more deeper than that. It will change your destiny. It will change your soul. 
it changed a lot of people's minds. It will change lives and change the world. The same place, if, uh, Acts 10, just giving a quick uh, view into that. Peter went up to the rooftop to pray, right? That's when he had a vision that came upon him. And the vision was, Paul, uh, Peter, slay all this thing and eat them. And Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. I'm a Jew. These are all unclean. And God says, what, do not call common what I call what I made clean. Again, to me, the idea was he was up at the rooftop alone. He wasn't going up there to ask God for stuff. He was going up there to be in communication with God, to be in communion with God. He was going to a place of isolation. And in the place in the desert, this is what happens. It's a place for purification and transformation. It's a place for the great struggle and the great encounter. It's a place where you encounter Jesus. It's a place where the sinner meets his Savior. It's where the creator meets its creator. Where the son or the daughter meets the father. It's where the servant meets the king. A lot of times, um, well, yesterday too, yesterday uh, I went to Birds Hill Park. Uh, I actually saw Kevin and Ivy there uh, with Michelle in the bikes. Right? But I didn't want to go to you guys because I was, I, was, I was trying to play this out, going to the place of isolation. I went for a run. But in, this, in the place, I was worshiping God. It wasn't asking God for, for petitioning. It wasn't a place for, I need this, I need this. It was just, God, this is beautiful. I just want to bless you. I just want to be in communion with you. And as I was running, oh, it was so beautiful. I never felt so free. You know, and it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's a place where something fundamentally changes a person's heart. You have to, you only find that in the wilderness. You can encounter Jesus in the church, but a true transformation happens in the wilderness with him. So it's not just us, right? I mean, just look, look at Jesus. I mean, in the next slide, we'll, I, know I, I throw in a few verses where Jesus does this. Mark 1, 12. At once, the Spirit sent, out, sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Mark six forty six. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Luke four forty two. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to, came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving town. Even Jesus needed to go to the place of isolation. Before he started his first ministry, he was taken out by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. That's where the great encounter happens. That's where the great transformation happens. That's where you're prepared for what's coming. And a lot of us make the mistake of, oh, I'm doing my daily devotionals. Yeah, this is outside the daily devotional thing. This is outside the church thing. This is outside small groups. This has to be the place where the creator goes and worships the creator. This is the place where, where the divine meets humanity. And you all and we all can encounter that because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Right? It's a place where we, it's not a place of, I don't want to say it's not a place of petition. Because I'll come back to that a little bit later. But first and most is a place of adoration. Uh, Mother Teresa uh, once quoted to uh, Henry Nowen, uh, an old uh, Anglican priest, uh, she, and he asked, "What should I do? Like, how do I how do I serve people?" And she said, "Spend each hour a day adoring God. That's it. One hour a day adoring God." So, um, coming back to Paul. In those three days he was there, uh, he must have been going through what happened like in this trip to Damascus. 
first he couldn't walk by sight anymore. He was blinded. Right? I wonder if it's a, it's a beautiful picture of how he was in terms of his heart towards God. He was blind. He was full of self-righteousness, full of passion, but in the wrong place. He can be really passionate and find meaningful things which might not be true. And that's the danger of the society we are living now. And so, so he's wrestling in there, and there's an encounter with Jesus that's happening. He couldn't rely on natural strength anymore. He didn't have the strength to eat or drink for three days. He was done. Right? Only resource he had was God himself. And so what happens in the place of desert is you stop relying on yourself. You stop looking at your, standing on your own feet. You realize it's all about Jesus. It has to be absolute grace, and there's nothing else to fall back on. There's no... So caveats, there's no way out. You're stuck there. Um, I would say something that happened to me when I came to Canada was, so I did my first degree in Australia. That was a huge struggle. Didn't have enough money and stuff, and I was working so much overtime. And, uh, and like, you know, there were times where I had a dollar left in my bank account, and I got two weeks to go, right? So, you know, all I had was bread. I drank tea. I, filled, I drank a lot of water. So I was super fit that time because there's you know, not much to eat. But I was super fit, man. I was going to the gym. It was part of the students' uh, feasting, so it was all good. So, uh, so after I finished the degree and went through all that thing, I told myself never again. Never again should anyone go through this. Right? It's a lot of stress. It takes away from your st- stress. I was working overtime. I was working all these different jobs you can find. Um, anyway, so I went back to Singapore. I started working in a professional firm. It was awesome. And I realized that I need to do, I need to further up, to go further out in my career, I need to do a degree in accounting. My first degree was in finance. I was like, okay, so I need to do a second degree, and I need to do it in accounting because that's where the career I want to go to. And so I worked for three years, and I saved as much as I can because I knew if I was going to find a, do a second degree or a graduate diploma, I don't want to go through what I did in Australia, right? And so I came to Canada. I was like, yes, I have all this money. I'll be good, God. It's all taken care of. I can afford it. I can work if I want to or don't if I don't have to, if I don't want to. So I came in, it's all, it all good. But what I did was, half of my money, I took it to Canada. The other half, so I left it into this person's, invested in this person's business. This person comes to our church sometimes back home in Singapore. He comes, for the past decade, he's, he comes once in a while, right? And we have another friend of us, my dad ministered to him and we know him. And for 10 years, the person has been telling my dad, why didn't you invest your money with me? I'll give you good returns for it. He has a whole bunch of different businesses, including a payday pay, pay lending service kind of a thing happening. And it wasn't outrageous returns. Like, okay, 6%, 7%, that's pretty reasonable. He wasn't affording it. He said, I'm going to give you 20%, which we know is too good to be true. And so I left half of my savings investing in that guy's business, knowing that in 16, 18 months or 12 months to 18 months, I would need the money back with the interest so that I could pay my student fees. <clears throat> and so what happened was, came here, it was all good, six months, eight months, now I need the money to pay off for my second uh, year. And so my dad went to the guys like, hey, uh, need the money? Guess what? The guy disappeared. For 10 years, he's been telling us to invest in his business. He chose that year, I gave my money to him to abandon everything and go off to the Philippines. Just like that, boom. You know, the thing I was standing on my own feet, gone, chopped off. What can I do? Now, my parents have money as much, and so 
how are we going to pay for the tuition fees? You know, it's like I came here full of like, yeah, I'm financially secure. I can do this. And all of a sudden, that's taken away from me. Right? So I find myself in the financial wilderness trying to figure out, okay, Lord, I don't want to go through what I did in Australia ever again. And so I really had to trust him. I really did. And he did. He did pull through. Did a bit of, uh, my parents came through with some money and some borrowing happening. But by the time I finished my degree, there's no debt. Right? Only God could do that. Now when I think back about that, there was no debt. How amazing is that? Okay, so, and, that, and okay, a quick story, another one was, <laughs> so, uh, I, so, you know, I came in a student visa, and I got a job offer with an accounting firm, and it was all great. Uh, that itself was a miracle, but that's, uh, that's an, a lot of miracles happened, and I'm so glad Anne was, Anne is here with me, and she was there at the time to witness all this. She couldn't believe it, too. She came from a very traditional Presbyterian background. And there's not much of working on miracles. There's not much of, of calling out in the wilderness going, because it's all liturgy. It's all this, is this, and move on, right? And she's like, man, and she's hanging out with me. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know I, need, I needed God as much as this, right? And so this time around, and I was like, okay, this is this advanced financial accounting course that I was doing, the final one. What happened was the, uh, the professor teaching it, he had a... You have reduced your Winnipeg, did not renew his contract. So he was very, very angry at them. And so he's like, well, you guys are not renew my contract. Guess what? I'm going to go hard on the students. He started taking it out on us. Right? And there's one time for two weeks, he didn't show up to work. Nobody knew where he went. Later on, we found out he was interviewing other, other universities in the States. Right? And then he came back and he said, he said the most hardest exam I ever taken. He wanted the class to fail. It's, it's a, kind of like a final, you know, this is what you guys do to me. This is how I get you guys back, kind of a thing. And it's and I was like, after I did the exam, I was like, my gosh, if I don't pass this exam, I won't be able to complete my degree in time. I won't get my job. I won't be able to do a job because I'm on a student visa. The only way I can start working is to get a work visa, which means I have to complete my degree. And so all this stress came upon me. I remember after I walked out from the exam, I quickly took out my phone and I called Anne. I said, we need to pray. We need to pray. Because there's no way I could have passed the exam. It was so tough. And so I went, went straight and met up and we started praying. After like an hour or two, we say, okay, we'll leave it to God. And I'm sure God will pull us through. He's carried me this far to carry me over, over the, uh, the final line, finish line. And so I remember two weeks later, as I was going to, in Anne's place, I was going through my laptop and I noticed that the results were being released. I was one of the eight who passed. 40, 40 people took it. Only eight passed. Oh, yeah. So it was so bad. The, the students petitioned the school trying to change the grades. The school said, no, sorry, but we'll do something for you guys. We will give you a special springs class for that, for you guys to retake this, uh, the class again. Because we know the, the professors really made you guys fail purposely. And so, yeah, and most, and my friends and all the Canadians, they had no issues. You know, they started working and they finished their one course. They redid it. They passed and moved on. But for me, it was an even more precarious situation. There's a lot of visas, a lot of legalities involved. And so, I, again, thank God, God pulled me through. Right? So, in moments like that, I realized I, I got nothing. I got nothing to stand on. It's only Christ I have. And so the thing is, I went into a place of petition during those times, but it became a place of adoration. You see, I got my answer only after I surrendered to Christ and loved him for who he was. 
So when I acknowledge that God, doesn't matter what happened, I know you are good. And no matter what, that's more important than anything else. Right? And then that's when I felt the peace came and I caused those results and moved on. So, in the wilderness, at the desert, any self-reliance will go away. Anything. During that time, too, I had a vision where um, I was taken up to heaven and I was in a place where there's these huge golden walls and they stretch for as far as my eyes can see. And I'm walking along the walls and I'm completely naked. Right? And I'm like, and I knew there's so much glory, so much goodness in there. And I realized that there's no way I could enter there by myself. There's nothing I could say to allow to be entered into that city. There's nothing I can say, I did this in earth, I did this, I know this, nothing. But there's only one thing. And, And what I felt was, such abject miserableness. It's such a miserable place. And what the thought that came to my mind was, that's the valley of the shadow of death. Especially when you have no hope in Christ. It's a miserable place. And the only thing I knew, if I kept walking, I'll come to the gates. I just have to say one name, Jesus, and I'll be allowed in. It's, it's, a, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place of like, it really shows there is no reliance on anything else. Only on him, on Christ alone. And so, that's where Paul was. A place of wilderness. He can't rely on anything. He has no strength for anything else. This guy wanted to come and gather his people and, and beat them up and bring them to Damascus. Come and feed himself. Couldn't do anything. Totally non-reliant anymore on himself. Became fully reliant on Jesus and Jesus alone. Something that Dave uh, Perry wanted me to ask the question, to the congregation is, are there things other than God himself that I am relying on? What is your security on this earth? What is your security here? Not for heaven, here, right now. What do you rely on? What, what, what are you standing on? Are you standing on, on sand or are you standing on the rock, the living stone? It's not so much retrospection that I would like us to do. It's so much adoration. Right? That's how you get transformed. That's how the things get shifted out and you realize you're standing on one thing only. And so it's not about you trying to find and figure yourself and then trying to do all this, praying all this, just on Jesus alone. It's really to him, we're transformed into his glory. And so, next slide, something happens in the wilderness is humbleness. And I always struggle with this because is is humility a choice or is it not? Right? Can you choose to be humble? Or is it something that God does to you? I was, I, was brought, I was brought into places of humbleness. And I realized that it's so that I can receive. Right? So I think sometimes God brings you to a place of humbleness so that you can receive. He wants to give you the best. And something Rick Warren said is that, um, that humbleness, humility is a choice. There's nowhere in the Bible and the scriptures where God said, I'll give you humbleness. I'll give you humility. But in First Peter 5, 6, it says, So humble yourselves. It's a choice. Under the mighty power of God. Matthew 28, uh, 23, 12. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So it is a choice then. And to me, the choice happens again when you look onto Christ and into him, and you realize, again, it comes back to reliance. You're not relying on anything else. So it is a choice. At the same time, it's not. 
right? And I'm not talking about a false humility. This is a quote from uh, Indra Gandhi, who was the Prime Minister of, uh, of India when she visited Pakistan. She told the Pakistan um, Prime Minister, don't be so humble, you're not that great. <laughs> right? It's the false humility, right? You don't want that in Christ. You can't have that in Christ. So the first thing that happens is you find yourself relying only on Christ alone. Second thing is for that to be in the desert, there will be humbleness, there will be humility, there will be generated in you. And that's a God thing as well as a choice. right? And I think that's where it has to be both. The third one is, um, in humbleness, Paul allowed himself, in terms of that story we read, for Ananias to touch him and heal him. Right? Who was Ananias? He's not a a Pharisee. He's not a teacher of the law. Paul was a student of, of who and who and who. Paul had a status. Ananias had nothing. But yet Paul allowed himself to be, not only be touched and healed, but to be baptized by Ananias. That's something Paul went through, a radical transformation in those three days. Right? So the next one, something that happens in the, at the desert is Anakino. Dave Perry, I mean, I'm so glad for Dave Perry. He, uh, you know, I had so much stuff going on, and I sent him my sermon, and he said, this is so random, and, and it's too complicated, Ruben. You've got you to really simpl- you know, simplify it, simplify it. And so I was like, oh, man, he's like Barnabas to me. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, you can rely on him. <laughs> and so in the desert, okay, anakaino. It's, it's a Greek word, right? It's usually, it's from um, the verse where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's from Romans 12. The renewal of the mind, that's anakaino. And the English word renewal doesn't really, it's not wholesome enough. Certain words in English, I feel like it's not wholesome enough. The words in Tamil, I speak my, that's my mother tongue, that's so wholesome. And it, it doesn't have that representation in English. You've got to put more words to it, more a phrase rather than one word. Right? So, Anakainu, it's so much in there. It's repentance, it's renewal, it's rewiring, it's revolutionizing, it's rejoicing. It's all this put together. That's Anakainu. And and, and, and what that does is that in the wilderness, you also get up for action, right? Because what happens after Paul gets baptized? Verse 19 to 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Ha! He wanted to bring them back, but now he's spending time with them. At once, at once, he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. Ha! How crazy is that? Right? This teacher of the law, the Pharisee, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, is not going about saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him, and I love this word, astonished. They were not like, oh, that's surprising. No, 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 no. They were astonished. They're like, what? Hey, wasn't this the guy who, who, who came here to like actually destroy us? And now he's telling Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, what a curveball, man. And so, that's, why, that's what happens in the deserts, Anakaino. It, it, if you're feeling parched, surprisingly, you have to go to the wilderness for this one. If you're feeling thirsty, you have to go to the wilderness for this one. If, if you're lacking peace, if you lack 
Go through the wilderness so you can be replenished, renewed, rewired, revolutionized, rejuvenated. Because, <clears throat> um, so in my next slide, I have something from Henry Nowen, inspired by him, was he talks a lot about the desert fathers. And in this case, they were literal desert fathers who lived in the desert, right? And so basically they were living during in Egypt and parts of, of Israel and the Middle East. And, and they, were, they spent the time just spending time with God. And people would come to them to get healing, to get, to get, to get blessings and to get prayers for them. And, and something else he said that I really liked was this. From their isolation, they not only had the power, but even the obligation to call people out, to bring them to the desert. And I feel that's something very interesting there because it's a place where it's not just becoming about yourself. You realize you want to bring people into the wilderness, right? So you, you want to bring others to their desert with you. And, and I really like that because they had the obligation, but they had also had the power. There's something there, spending time with Christ in, your, in the wilderness that gives you the power and it becomes focused on other people too. Right? You, want, you want to help others? Go to the wilderness. How about that? It's, it's so not what we would think it is. Right? You want to help others? Go out to the streets, go out and pray, and go, go and get help the poor. But I think in this point, it's something really powerful. You want to help others? Go to the desert. And from there, they give you that compassion, the place of power in it, to pull people in, to bring them into the wilderness. And so, uh, kind of coming to my conclusion is, being teachable is, it's not that easy. You have to go to the desert to get to have that. And because in the desert, three things happen. You realize it's Christ alone. You realize it has to be humility in there and anakaino. It's three things. And so I actually had another one also too uh, it's that Dave said, uh, too complicated, take it off. So my first point was find your desert. Second was keep your manger dirty. Right? It's from Proverbs. You know, it, it says, some, uh, the gist of it is, you know, uh, the manger, when there's no ox, the manger is clean. But bountiful harvest comes from the use of a powerful ox. Right? So, again, it's an lesson for another day. Uh, but I just want to put a fair warning there. Right? So I've talked to you about isolation. I've been to services where people say, be intimate with God. Be intimate with God. But why? Being intimate is not the point. It's not the purpose of being intimacy. You know what I mean? It's Christ alone. It has to be Christ. You want to be intimate because it's Christ, right? And so, it, it's it's that's why I want to give a leeway that it's Christ at the same time. It's a place of adoration at the same time. It can be a place of petition, but it has to be a place of adoration in the end, right? And so, let's just put it this way: if you go to isolation to find peace, you won't find it. If you go to isolation to find joy, you won't find it. If you go to isolation to find clarity, you won't find it. We go out to isolation to be with Christ. All that will be added unto you. Right? And so, something about in the desert, that when we become fully transformed by Christ, we realize something. Three things, basically. Only in Christ, in the context of His grace, we can face our sin. 
Only in the place of healing, we can dare to show our wounds. Only in a place of love, we can fear no more. All that happens in the desert. And I love Israel's, in Deuteronomy 4-7, they have a, a verse they say, and that is so powerful. And I'm like, I want to be like them. And, and it's a boast, right? What they say is this, For what great nation is there that there has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What a boast. This is like, what nation is there when they cry out, God comes to them? That is, that's what they're boasting on. And so, there is no God like our God who addresses our shame, anxiety, and pain, and fear as much as Christ did. And he addressed it in a way that the whole universe, all of creation, have witnessed it. He did it on the cross for all to see. You want to talk about, you want to boast? Boast about the God who drew us, who draws us so near to him who come so close when we cry out. And so, I would say, go out to the wilderness and be the voice. Cry out to him. He will meet you there, and he will be near you.